Welcome to another Divorce TV show. We have three guests. One of them is pre-recorded. That's Rabbi Danielle Gunvold. We talked about Get, the Get, last week. And so we've got a real rabbi on the show uh, pre-recorded because it's Friday. So he's a bit busy on a Friday, but he was kind enough to let me interview him. So we've got that coming up soon. We have another shared story from Kimberly Oetz, who has written an amazing book sharing the stories of the children of divorce and a healing with Harley Street coach Olivia James. But let's uh, get on with the news for this week. So over in um, America, this is the Times Union. It says there's a study and that divorce is contagious. And there's a poll, apparently, to prove it. Divorce is contagious. At least that's the word according to a large study that found if your friends are divorced, you're much more likely to dissolve your marriage as well. One study has that number as high as 75% more likely. The study that produced that shocking to many, according to the article, stat, included researchers from Brown, Harvard and the University of California at San Diego. It found you're 75% more likely to divorce if one of your friends is also divorced. Seems a bit high. And friends of friends also play a role. If one of your friend's friend is divorced, your odds of joining that club increase 33%. That study was done well before the pandemic hit. Anecdotally, it seems, more people are splitting up. Some research suggests that is true. Another study disputes that observation, saying divorce rates are down, attributing that in large part to the costs associated with splitting up and no doubt job insecurity. Regardless of if there are more or fewer divorces, the fact is, according to this, that about 50% of marriages end in divorce. I think those are the US figures. I don't think we're quite there yet in the UK. And if friends, colleagues or family members are no longer married, you're more likely to divorce as well. Apparently, um, we're going now to pensions. OK, this is from The Guardian in the UK. It says divorce settlements must change to make pension sharing fairer, say experts. An urgent cause comes research reveals huge gaps in pension wealth between men and women in the UK. I love these titles, these uh, headlines. We've known this for some time, but it's it's always a good one to bring it back up again. Divorce settlements should be urgently reformed to put pension sharing at their heart, experts have said, after a major piece of research has revealed huge gaps in pension wealth between men and women. The research, based on official data, is the first to put figures on differences in pension wealth between married couples, as well as looking at divorced people and across gender age groups, different incomes and wealth distributions. The findings come as the government has confirmed it will suspend the triple lock on pensions for one year, abandoning another manifesto pledge. The triple lock policy guarantees that the state pension will increase in line with whichever is the highest of inflation, earnings or 2.5% or, or so the suspension of the triple lock comes due to the impact of COVID-19 on wages. Now the starkest findings are the differences between married couples with men aged between 65 and 69 having more than six times the pension wealth of their partners, over 
£1,000 compared with £35,000 for women. Married men aged 55 to 64 have more than three times the pension wealth of married women the same age, according to the peer-reviewed reviewed report by the Manchester Institute for Collaborative Research on Ageing, MICRA, and the Pensions Policy Institute. The report draws on data from the Office for National Statistics Wealth and Assets Survey. So for the age group most likely to get divorced, those aged between 45 and 54, the difference is smaller but still substantial with married men having accumulated more than twice as much pension wealth as a married woman of the same age, about £86,000 compared with £40,000. Now, in, in the UK in 2000, the law changed to allow pensions to be shared on divorce, and quite rightly so. But the most recent official st statistics indicate that just 12% of divorces result in any pension division. That's because they don't come and talk to us. Divorce is a very emotional time for couples, says Deborah Price, the co-author of the report and professor of social gerontology at the University of Manchester. It is especially difficult for them to think about pensions and often the person with a larger pension, almost always the husband, does not want their pension to be shared as an asset in divorce. Women are often very focused on keeping their homes for themselves and the children and are often prepared to give up quite a lot to secure that added price, a former president of the British Society of Gerontology and the director of MICRA. Pensions are also complex and horrible to think about, she says, and if you do think about them, you very often end up needing to pay legal and financial advisers to give you advice, which people don't want to do. This creates a lot of pressure to ignore the pensions. Research has previously shown that men have very emotional attachments to their pensions, which they do, and that solicitors are often instructed by the women they are acting for to ignore pensions because the emotional and personal costs are too high. Maybe it's because I'm not a solicitor that when, when women say that, oh, we're, I'm not going to have his pension, we've, we've agreed that, I, I say things like, well, you've, you've got two young children, don't you think you should talk to a financial expert before you make any kind of commitments on that? because it is, uh, it's one of the first things that you should be, be sorting out. Even when pensions are considered, studies show that the fairness of pension outcomes is often questionable, while the valuing of pensions in divorce cases is highly inconsistent across the country. Women often see the house versus the pension as a trade-off, but they do this in many cases without even finding out what the pension is worth. Because it's not always as much, it's not always valued in the way you think it is. It depends on the kind of pension. So you really should get some advice on it. And also without thinking about how they are going to live in later life, said Tim Pike, head of modelling at the Pensions Policy Institute. This, said Hilary Woodward, the CEO of the Pension Advisory Group, raises questions that need to be answered. If anyone needed convincing that more needs to be done to improve pension outcomes on divorce, the evidence is here in this report, she said. Well, the answer is really simple. And the first one of the first things I recommend anyone does where there's pensions and property is talk to a financial planner who does long-term cash flow forecasting. Unfortunately, uh, that's not usually the advice people get when they just go to their solicitor. Uh, but, that, but it should be. And also to their mediators should be encouraging them to do it as well.
and we finish with a really lovely article I tried to cut it down but it was so nice um, it's a little bit long but I hope you enjoy it it's from the New York Times and it's that divorce can be an act of radical self-love and it's by Lara Bazelon and Ms. Bazelon is a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law and the author of the forthcoming book Ambitious Like a Mother and she says, I used to believe that divorce is a terrible thing, particularly when children are involved. Growing up, I absorbed cultural tropes about absent fathers and efficiency apartments, mothers struggling to support themselves, and awful step-parents and unwanted step-siblings. To this day, divorce is portrayed as precarious and grim. Parents whose marriages break apart are made to feel they have failed catastrophically. Divorce is shameful, traumatic, and bad for the kids. That is definitely something that still persists. But I've learned that divorce can also be an act of radical self-love that leaves the whole family better off. She says, my divorce nearly seven years ago freed me from a relationship that was crushing my spirit. It freed my children, then five and three, from growing up in a profoundly unhealthy environment. There was no emotional or physical abuse in our home. There was no absence of love. I was in love with my husband when we got divorced. Part of me, she says, is in love with him still. I suspect that will always be the case. Even now, after everything, when he walks into the room, my stomach drops the same way it does before the roller coaster comes down. I divorced my husband, not because I didn't love him. I divorced him because I loved myself more. There are many reasons we did not make it, but the main one is that we had incompatible visions of our roles as partners and parents. Having children did not transform me. In fact, it didn't change me much at all. I love our children beyond reason. I know I am lucky to have them. That's a good point she makes. This is why we should do more preparation for marriage. Work with a life coach. You know, make sure you have the same values and dreams. Or it's going to come and hit you later. But after I became a mother, I was still the same striving work-obsessed, domestically challenged person I had always been. I made choice after choice to prioritise my career because I believed fervently in the importance of the work I was doing, providing legal representation to wrongfully convicted men and women. It gave me an identity, a purpose and the comfort of knowing I could support myself. My ex-husband was not unreasonable in wanting me to change, not to give up working, but to stop chasing after bigger, harder projects. He works hard, but not when he's at home. He rarely travels and actively engages with nearly every aspect of our children's lives, no matter how mundane. I fell short of his standards. You are not present was a phrase I heard a lot. Sometimes it was literal. For years, I travelled frequently for work. Sometimes it was metaphorical. My mind consumed by a case of a piece of writing, I would retreat to an inner world that made it hard to focus on the people right in front of me. Anyone out there? noticing that in themselves too. Sometimes during the final months of my marriage, I wavered. Maybe if I quit my long distance job and found a position closer to home, even if I did not particularly care for it, we could hold on. Perhaps I could work part time, join the PTA at my son's school and start cooking dinner. I fervently wanted to save my marriage and give my children an intact family. And I had been taught that divorce was a terrible thing to be avoided at all costs. But deep inside, I knew that trying to force myself to subordinate my ambitions and always put our children first would have been impossible without lopping off a vital part of myself. I would picture myself a few decades into the future, sitting next to my husband at our daughter's wedding. One of the guests, well-meaning, would raise a glass to toast our own happy marriage. What footsteps the bride was following in. 
and there I would be, skinny and sunken in my sea-foam mother-of-the-bride dress, the smile on my face freezing the resentment beneath a third vodka tonic sweating in my hand. Our daughter would know the truth, that it had not been a happy marriage at all. She would know, and my son would know. We stayed together for the kids is a common refrain, reflecting an ingrained belief that anything is better than a broken family. To which I silently reply, you aren't fooling anyone. Children know on an intuitive level what their parents are thinking and feeling. Long frosty silences, screaming matches and unrelenting tension between parents can inflict damage to the well-being of their children. One 38-year-old newly single mother who works full-time and attends graduate school at night told me with pride that for the first time she is living with her nine-year-old in an apartment she picked out, decorated and paid for on her own. Everything is my choice and I'm in charge, she said, adding that her former husband is an, is an involved co-parent. The relationship changed, but no one disappeared. That has certainly been my family's experience, she says. We split custody and finances down the middle and I try to keep my longest working hours to the days I am alone. My ex-husband and I make a point of spending time together with our children, having regular dinners, watching sports and going for bike rides as a foursome. We strive to be collaborative and cooperative even when we aren't getting along. Our parenting styles remain very different but we do not snipe or undermine each other. We bite our tongues. Recently, I asked my daughter, now 10, how she felt. She told me, some of my friends spend more time with their parents, but I have to give you a lot of credit because those kids are in two parent families. Our criminal justice system is horrible and messed up and you were trying to help get it fixed, she added. I want to have a big career and to try to get somewhere and to have an impact. I would say that I'm the happiest divorce person I know, but there is stiff competition. Divorce can, of course, be miserable and rancorous as an experience and one that leaves one or both former partners financially or emotionally broken. But for unhappily married women who are able to support themselves and their children, breaking free can also be like plunging into a cold ocean, a shock to the system that is at once brutal and cleansing. They can emerge stronger and clearer eyed. Their children benefit because happier mothers are better parents. That is definitely true. I no longer think, she says, of divorce as shameful or feel sorry for people who tell me that they have decided to end their marriages. There are many ways a family can be broken. Sometimes the healthiest decision is to remove the cracking shell of the nuclear family before the shards embed themselves into the precious little people nestled inside. My divorce spared my children that pain and let me live the life I was meant to. I view that as an accomplishment. And on that note, we will be going to our expert, who is Rabbi, Rabbi Doniel Grunwald, and it's pre-recorded, and he's... Suppose a, uh, a man decides that he is going to... Uh, is not interested in the marriage anymore and therefore he, sim he simply leaves now uh, a marriage any marriage really but certainly a jewish marriage has certain expectations as a and certain responsibilities and if you're not meeting them it's obviously not expect not fair to expect a spouse to remain in the marriage but under such circumstances the woman is entitled to demand a get 
and if he refuses to uh, to give the get, he can be coerced to do so. What I wanted to contrast that with is the case where the woman leaves. She says she doesn't want the marriage anymore, but he says, "I'm happy to con to to continue the marriage. I want to continue the marriage." And um, uh, let's suppose she says, "Well." If she's asked, why did you leave? Let's suppose she said, well, I just didn't like him. Uh, I just don't, wanna, don't want to continue. I don't want to remain married. He hasn't done anything wrong. So she is trying to unilaterally end the marriage. So then the, the, con the concept of coercion, which is primarily uh, to be applied to someone who is not meeting his obligations of, in marriage, cannot be directly applied. To, to this man. Um, so now in many cases, it'll be unclear which of the two it is. If through a, um, uh, a process, we can ascertain that he, that he is uh, obligated, he's not meeting, not prepared, not able to meet his obligations in the marriage and therefore must, must divorce her, then the get could be coerced but it would not necessarily be able to be coerced in, in the other case. It would need a softer approach. There was a case which was actually, you know, the Yiddish word schlepping, I mean, something dragging on for a while. And the husband had did have a certain resistance to giving the get. So what happened was, and I was pleased with, um, if I may say so, with my achievement, uh, in that particular case, although I will add that I don't think I could have done it without the help of the best in, it was actually um, a best in in the in the most uh, ultra orthodox sect of the of the of the UK community. Um, as we were sitting there, they realised we realised actually we'd prepped them beforehand, which is a little bit against procedure, but we thought we have to do this for everyone's benefit and they knew they need to be soft on him they need to be understanding they need to they not say well look you jolly well should give the get they need to really listen to what's bothering him and most of what was bothering him was young one young child involved and his perception was that the wife was alienating the child from him now it looked like it wasn't actually true it looked like she was doing her best but on the other hand, it looked to me like she didn't have all the skill that she could have. So as part of the discussion, I said, look, this will be the deal. Let's get the get done as soon as possible. And actually, in this case, we encourage the get to be done before the ancillary matters are settled. Because as all mediators know, disputes become entrenched. And if you let something go on for longer and longer and longer people are it's going to be harder and harder and harder to change people's positions and that's what causes the get stalemate who so said let's do the get straight away and we did and that's over that means there can never again be any sort of get problem in that particular case and part of the negotiation was that she will agree to have a professional involved to advise as to how to handle this seven-year-old boy in a way which minimizes any risk of parental alienation. So the point was identifying the issues which were bothering him and dealing with them. And I want to add 
uh, as a second point, which isn't an anecdote, but something I think people should know about. One of the most respected voices in the Jewish world, in fact, in the Orthodox Jewish world, uh, really of the last um, the last hundred years, probably in this country, has been the previous chief rabbi, Lord uh, Rabbi Lord um, Jonathan Sachs. And I remember once meeting him at a family wedding, and somehow I got into conversations about the aguna. Aguna is a Hebrew technical term for a chained woman. And he said to me, and I can't quite remember this word for word, but this is more or less what he said. He said to me, you know what the real answer to this problem of men not giving kitten is? And again, this was not an ultra-Orthodox fanatic. This was a man who changed the world, who spoke to the whole world about peace and harmony and was known for that. And he said, you know what the real, the real answer is? We have to really, really listen to the husband and find out what is bothering them. Maybe that won't work for absolutely every case, because maybe you have some people who are so stubborn, so difficult, psychopathic or whatever it is. Maybe it won't work for every single case, but it will work for a lot of cases. Really find out what's... And it's a completely the opposite of the confrontational approach. But he wasn't saying that because he was, he was a, um, uh, a trained as a mediator. He was saying that because of his experience as chief rabbi, the leader of the Jewish community. And um, but the story is not finished yet, because when Rabbi Sachs said this to me, he said this with, with such conviction, it sounded like something that he's told people before. So I said, maybe he's written about it. And I googled whatever, Jonathan Sachs, Aguna, listening, whatever it was. And I found something he'd written in one of the articles. He, he's got articles on Jewish thought on the on the on the um bible the biblical portion of the week every week on the sabbath we read a portion of the of the torah it's called the bible five books of moses technically and uh, i thought maybe he talks about it and it turns out that he, i found something immediately he had an all ar whole article about the value of listening and he mentioned a few things from his own life experience and he's got a paragraph about this point he said when i was chief rabbi we had difficult cases we were able to resolve, I forget whether he says all or most of them, but we were able to resolve them with deep listening. And I thought, I, I wish this, this quote was more well known. I want to see if I can publicize it at, at some point, because it really, really uh, was powerful, well written. And it's, um, it's, it's a lesson and uh, appreciating that, I think, will help us in our, our battle or in our work to do whatever we can in this area. Thank you, Rabbi Doniel Grunvolt. Uh, listening, yes. And if you remember from last week, we talked about one of the news stories of a gentleman withholding the get, the Jewish divorce, which is a major issue because within the religion, even if you get a civil divorce, it means you can't, you can't get married again. So uh, it's quite serious stuff. Um, but the, once again, the use of mediation techniques can, and listening can change the course of what could otherwise end up being quite a drawn out, protractive and damaging experience for the couple. Quick QR masterclass. 
So the QR code simply takes you to the uh, free to download Best Way to Divorce app. And within there, I have lots of good things, but I wanted, I'm still talking through, because I haven't done all 10 of them yet. I love these, the Children's Bill of Rights, and we're on number uh, seven now. And this is the Robert Emery PhD, who wrote this as professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. And number seven of the Children's Bill of Rights is the right to reasonable financial support during your childhood and through your college years. I think that should be written down and put in front of parents who start battling over the finances. And and purely because it often is the, the father who's in that financial situation and is often feels that they're cast out of the home, sometimes they do have a tendency to use uh, the finances weapons and it's always the children who suffer and there does seem to be a disconnect of realizing how much um, how much they really are da- damaging the children and dumping things on the wife I, I unfortunately come across a lot of of cases where it's as if the father just hasn't really understood the impact of of their financial decision making shall we say and if they could think about this before they sit down to talk about the financials and how they should split the assets. The right to reasonable financial support during your childhood and through your college years. If they can agree that is a right they should uphold for their children as much as they financially can, then yeah, that's another one you should put on the fridge. And on the note of children, we have a Kimberly's come back to share a story. And Kimberly's joining us. Thank you for coming back, Kimberly. And which chapter in your book are you going to share with us today? Well, my book, uh, Family Redefined Childhood Reflections on the Impact of Divorce. This is chapter seven and her name is Katniss. And she and her brother were subjected not only to her parents' divorce, but they lived in an abusive household. So even before the divorce began, Katniss assumed the role of caregiver for her younger brother. And she actually um, explained to me when I interviewed her that she feels that gave her strength, that she could get through what each of them had to go through during their childhood and into their teen years because she knew she was his protector. And that um, has remained to this day and they're both in their forties now and they have an unbreakable bond that's pretty amazing. And she herself is now a successful businesswoman. She's an entrepreneur. She is a, she, she's a very proud mo- mother and she's married to her second husband. And she feels that In a way, she's almost grateful for the difficult circumstances that she and her brother had to endure throughout their childhood because as her reasoning for picking the name Katniss to represent her in the book is a reference to the Hunger Games, the main character in that story and how she rose from, you know, the ashes to um, success. And she feels that that pretty much describes her exactly. (laughs) 
And what and that's a a lovely story. And what, in your opinion, and in, in the story, the way you gather these stories, and because obviously you go into in depth interviews with them, um, it, it's not easy to. Yeah, she's there now, but what did she draw on in order to go from what must be quite been quite a traumatic time as a child to being able to resolve things and to come out the other side not broken. Honestly, she credits a lot of it to her role as the caregiver. By assuming that responsibility, it actually strengthened her own resolve to be able to overcome or at least endure what they had to go through. Um, They're one of the worst case scenarios I've ever, you know, um, heard about. They dealt with uh, complete abandonment by both parents from time to time throughout their whole childhood where she was literally taking care of her brother who was only three years younger than her when she was eight years old. And they were left all alone with no money and she had to figure out they ate toothpaste sometimes for dinner because their circumstances are just horrendous. So to know, and both her and her brother are in the book. And they to know that they're both so successful now in the fact that they're happy with who they are and I, they each credit each other for, for that success because children of divorce have to have someone to support them and to lean on. And unfortunately, Katniss didn't have that, but she provided that. And I think that gave her the internal strength she needed to get through it. That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much, Kimberly. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, gorgeous almost makes me cry stories like that so thank you for sharing that Kimberly and uh, now's a good time to have some healing and we've got someone new for you today I'm gonna bring in yeah hello how are you thank you so much Thank you so much, Olivia, for joining us. Um, Harley Street Coach, that's your business. So presumably you're in Harley Street? I am indeed, yes, number 10. (laughs) Excellent. And and before you uh, launch us into a little bit of giving us a little preparation for what we're going to be doing, just tell us a little bit about yourself because we haven't met you before on the show. Yes, uh, so I'm uh, I'm a trauma therapist. Um, I went through a divorce myself, which was, uh, it rocked my world, but not in a good way. And that was in fact, uh, you probably hear this a lot, like I, I ended up having some some counselling and then I had some, some more like in-depth work and I thought, my God, this is really powerful. And also, Oh, I thought I was fine. But in fact, I wasn't. There was so much emotion stored in my system still. And I realized that so much emotion stored in our body. It isn't just that we can talk about things and then we're fine. You'll probably hear this all the time. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly something can just set you off and you're in floods of tears or you feel totally destabilized. So as a trauma therapist i see all sorts of different people people with different things i do a lot of confidence work um and of course trauma and uh, like we've had some some stories today of like abuse and neglect and like these sort of developmental traumas as well can really affect us and really knock our confidence so um I, I love the work you're doing. I'm really impressed with it. And I love your your ethos. So 
uh, that's kind of like part of what I try and do with people. I try and help them move past and achieve what's known as post-traumatic growth. So there's a sense of, yes, this thing happened to me. It's always going to be a part of my story, but it doesn't define me and I'm not limited by it. I hear you nodding. That's so so empowering, so empowering. And and, uh, what I picked up from what you're saying, I mean, talking therapies can be very valuable. Yes. But as you said, we hold these things, and this was my experience as well, we hold these things in our bodies. And if we don't do something about that, it will catch up with us physically, not just uh, uh, psychologically. And, and, And it's really funny because as a trauma therapist, I recognize that, you know, you you try and get back to dating and then you can get incredibly like defensive or snappy or hugely triggered and it's because that that trauma is still stored low down in your system and and it isn't just in this cognitive part of your brain this rational part most of the time you know trauma isn't a rational thing it's a very quick like visceral response so the more people can do sort of clearing and get get it from all parts of their brain and their body and their nervous system kind of the happier they can be and the happier any children that they can have yeah. and certainly be, anyone they date anyone they're dating is going to benefit as well oh, seriously <laughs> <laughs> well so with, with us to today for the next 10 minutes what have you got in store for us so yes, I have got a, 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 a tapping uh, meditation. I'm just going to set my timer. Uh, so I do uh, a lot of a different style of tapping to, to what people might be used to. Uh, so I hope this is helpful for people. Please tap along. I'm aware that some people will only be listening to this. So please indulge me. Uh, tap along if you feel able to. And uh, let's see where we can uh, where we can go in this 10 minutes excellent thank you i shall let you loose hi everybody so for those of you that that are listening i'm going to be doing some tapping on some points on the body so these are related to acupuncture points now this looks pretty crazy but there is actually some really good research that it, that it actually works so our own nice uh our regulatory body have recommended this for post-traumatic stress in adults and i know that divorce can certainly be very very traumatic especially where things like betrayal are involved so you get two fingers and you tap at the beginning of the eyebrow or as my mentor says where the eyebrow would have started for women that mess around with their eyebrows a lot and then the outside of the corner bit of the eye and then under the eye it should be a little bit sore it's right underneath the pupil and then under the nose the little clefty bit between the nose and the chin and then on your chest where you would point where you would pin a medal so if you rub that point it should be a little bit sore that's the point you want to tap i'm just going to talk you through all the points and then we're going to do some some actual tapping so your finger the finger tapping if you tap with the thumb on the top if you hold your hand oh, it's hard to explain tap on the top of the of the the uh, index finger and then tap on the next finger down and the next one down and the next one down and then back up again this can be very soothing a lot of men especially find this very soothing for things like anxiety so now 
find four or five points that you like i'm just going to go through that sequence again and we're going to say some things and i'm not going to ask you to accept yourself because i know that can be very problematic for lots of people that do tapping so let's try something and say i release all my emotional attachments to the guilt of everything going wrong And if any emotions come up, just let them come and don't try and change them. Just let them come and keep tapping through the points. So if you find that, that you have a guilt feeling in a particular part of the body, focus on that and carry on tapping. And then say, I release, um, I, I release this guilt and I restore the right energy flow. For example, if it's in your chest, say to my chest, and then let it let it move and then say i restore the right energy balance to my chest and then just let that settle so we're, we're not looking to, to to totally reduce it down all the way just let it settle and let it do what it needs to do and then let's do one of the, the big ones here so I um, release all my emotional attachments to having my confidence knocked and then keep tapping so eyebrow eyebrows and then outside of the eye and then if that confidence feeling is in your stomach for example just say I restore the right energy flow to my stomach I restore the right energy balance to my stomach and keep tapping up to those those points now if there's been a betrayal which can be one of the most um, serious forms of trauma and if you, if this has happened to you you'll know exactly what I'm talking about we need to do a little bit of clearing on that so you tap under the nose and just say I release all my emotional attachments to this betrayal and just tap and this can get quite emot emotive so if you find a lot of anger coming up all of a sudden or any kind of sadness just let it flow and a little sigh and then what you can do is if you find that underneath that betrayal there is anger for example then you can say I restore the right energy balance to this anger and I restore the right energy flow to this anger many of us especially women in many cultures are very very afraid of our anger and it's not acceptable but this anger can often come up and we need to acknowledge it and we need to where appropriate use it but the more you the more of this clearing you've done the kind of the more uh cleanly you can use your anger and the more you can channel that because it is a, a mobilizing it can be a mobilizing force so i know that that we've had um, in this show a few, a few few talks about different different cultures and i know especially in some cultures that there is a lot of feelings of letting people down if your marriage breaks up so again if you tap under the nose this is a good point for guilt and shame we just say 
I release all my emotional attachments to letting people down and just tap there and there may be a lot of sadness under there so just let that come and then tap under the mouth and just keep just focusing on that feeling and see what see where it goes and then eventually when you do this just let it go let it flow and then notice where it is in the body and then eventually you might feel a little bit lighter and which is kind of what we're hoping for so we're not trying to um pretend that that we we don't have these feelings but we're trying to let them move because most of the time with with when people get traumatized and when trauma sticks it's because of emotions that freeze in our system so this is a, a safe and gentle way to let them let them flow and let them move and actually acknowledge them because often we are so afraid of our feelings and our emotions that um, that we sort of try and you know uh, tamp them down and hold them in and uh, this can actually not be very good this is not good for our mental health um, so if there's been serious trauma in 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 the relationship then you need to to very very slowly let that go and the, one of the biggest things about trauma is feeling overwhelmed say so we're gonna do i release all my emotional attachments to feeling unsafe and overwhelmed and again if emotion comes up here it's totally understandable and just keep tapping tap under the eye and just let it move And then finally, the most important thing about marriage and about your future is this feeling of love. The love that you have for yourself and the love that you had for your partner and that you have for your children and your family. So just say, I release all my emotional attachments to feeling unloved. and see what happens and keep tapping and then say I restore the rent right energy balance to my love I restore the right energy flow to my love and just notice what happens in your body and if you feel that in a particular part of your body just let it let it flow and let it be and see notice what happens so finally i would like to thank you for taking this time to be with yourself if you have any kind of um emotional feelings about the work that that you've just done they should subside within 24 hours. So be gentle with yourself. I always say to clients, like, go outside, go in, get in a fight, drink lots of tequila. Obviously the opposite of that is true. Like take care of yourself, maybe have a nice bath, drink lots of water, try and get some rest, listen to music that makes you happy. You know, spend time with people or pets that you love and take excellent care of yourself. Thank you so much for your attention and I wish you all the best.
Thank you very much. I've probably got lots of red blobs all over me from tapping away. I was I was just getting excited about the idea of going out for tequila. But yeah, warm baths and nurturing. Which is something we should all be doing more of anyway. In the war of divorce, on the battlefield of family separation, always, always make peace your weapon of choice. 